phase that we're entering into at this point is the what we call the Lord of Hosts or, or Yahweh Savah or Tzavah, however you want to say that, the Lord of Hosts phase. We have to understand that there first exists the abomination of the occupation of the Gogian host in Jerusalem and in Israel. The latter-day manifestation of the kingdom of men that must first be dealt with. The time of Jacob's trouble is at a climax. And for the surviving Jews who have either taken refuge in neighboring Jordan or a now-occupied Egypt or find themselves still held up in the defensive positions in Jerusalem, no doubt all hope will have seemed lost for Israel. Um, we had a uh, sister just, just mentioned to me that at the, the beginning of our break that... Um, just recently, and I, I looked at it and didn't look at it any further since there's so much that's going on now, but uh, just this past week, I think, just this past week, that the, the UN actually had a, a celebration, um, a united celebration. It was against Israel in, in celebration of the Palestinians. It wasn't just a celebration and support, a show of support for Palest, the Palestinians. Uh, not like there's really any such thing anyway. But it was actually against Israel. Um, and so we are living in remarkable times. And I think what we're seeing happening in the United States is, is opening the door any last uh, uh, resistance. Uh, not to say that uh, God has, has plans for, for different nations and uh, there will be countries that will be on one side or the other, but um, truly Israel is a, is a hated nation and that, that, uh, that hatred is, is not is not being 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 kept under the under the rug anymore. It's it's becoming very open and very aggressive. Um, the nations will be drunk at this time. During this time, when when Christ and the saints are joined together in Sinai, the nations will be drunk with elation over the destruction of Israel, and the few friends Israel has had find themselves at a loss to help. The natural seed of Abraham is now ready for salvation from their Messiah and recognition of his, of his existence and authority as the true seed of David and rightful heir to that throne. And hopefully if I have my slides here in the right order. This will be in the manifestation of what the Scriptures speak of in terms uh, as the rainbowed angel. The military manifestation and campaigns of Christ and His bride. This great and terrible host is also symbolized by what was seen by Ezekiel, which we have up here, in the vision of the cherubim. Closely related to this, the vision of the Son of Man, or the Man of One, as witnessed by Daniel and later by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And in Revelation 7, we have the glorious symbolic vision of the 144,000, or spiritual Israel. These are all great Israelite symbols that provide various lessons of what is to come and how God chooses to manifest His power. They are manifestations of fiery judgment and cleansing or atonement. The manifestation of God's strength and cleansing purpose for this earth as executed by Christ and the saints. Now, thinking back to the children of Israel in Sinai during their wilderness wanderings, they were to move forward from their encampments in Sinai or were to go to battle when an alarm was sounded through the blowing of the silver trumpets. Not the shofar, but of the silver trumpets. What is silver a sign of? Redemption. Silver is a sign of redemption. As a type of that future spiritual Israelitist host, there will be another trumpet alarm for movement and war. Thus beginning the apocalyptic epic of the seventh trumpet, which contains the seven thunders. Now, it was mentioned to me uh, during the break as well that, uh, just to use an example, is that I, one of Obama's uh, ideas in dealing with terrorism is, is opposed to the way that, the, I guess you say, the Bush doctrine um, that he wants to to uh, to bring the 
terrorists around to our view of thinking by persuasion, by gentle persuasion and, and uh, association. Uh, we know that man's ways are not God's ways. And what a shock it's going to be to the world to see this manifestation of power and strength. This isn't the way that humanism works. Uh, they're not used, they don't, do not like the show of force, uh, the show of power, the show of military strength and might that goes totally against their mindset. And so, it's not going to, the terrorists of the world and the, and the uh, governments of this world, they're not going to be dealt with a persuasive hand by Christ. That persuasion, it will be persuasive, but it will be at the, at the, at the tip of a sword rather than by debate. There'll be nothing to debate at this time, or nothing to debate at this time. Uh, this, this trumpet call, or declaration of war, this blowing of the silver trumpets, is first upon the kingdom of men, now in occupation of the Holy Land, and then later upon mystic Babylon, Rome, and the rest of the world. This is the process required for the setting up of the kingdom, the redemption of natural Israel, and literally, and think about this, literally the salvation of the entire earth from oppression, falsehood, and wickedness. When, when Gog and the beast nations uh, and the, the Muslim nations are united against Israel, uh, not all the Muslim nations, but, but those who are, are specifically mentioned in the Scriptures, and not all, and not all the world, but though we, we have to say that, that, that all the world, if not most of the world, except for those few nations that do uh, have a, a, a connection to Israel, um, when, when those, those nations get the upper hand, when they have invaded the Holy Land, when they have the ascendancy, we have to think about that the world will be a very bad place to live in at that time. Uh, and without Christ's redemptive power, without His strength to put down these aggressive forces, uh, that the future of the world would be a very dark and a very grim uh, place to be. The first hit of Yahweh's fierceful vengeance strikes the northern invader at Basra. And we're not going to go into detail here, but... This this will be the first the first strike. Isaiah sixty three one through six. Let's turn there. Isaiah sixty three one through six. And I'll point this out before we move on in this era that we have here of the saints coming out of Sinai. Does anybody know what this Hebrew word is right here? It's kind of hard to read. This is Yahweh. I'm not expecting you to read Hebrew. Actually, it's Yahweh Elohim. And it's, that's not that you could remember seeing that from now on in your Hebrew in your Hebrew reading when you go through, but that's just, just so that you know that's what that's, that's what that's saying. Yahweh Elohim. I don't know why he doesn't have uh, Lord of Hosts there, but it's Yahweh Elohim. Isaiah 63, 1-6 Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, that's the answer. The question is, who is this? The answer. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Next question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Answer. I have trodden the winepress alone. And of, and of the people, there was none with me. Or we should say, there was no natural fleshly help. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come and I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me in my fury it upheld me and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Awfully aggressive language. I guess the people of this world would think that somebody that said that kind of stuff needed some anger management classes, but that's not according to righteousness. 
Habakkuk 3.3. Habakkuk 3.3. And again, every single one of these points that we bring out is, is a whole a whole subject to be to be studied within itself. This marching of the rainbowed angel. Habakkuk 3 3. God came. And if you don't have this marked in your Bible, this should be not a past tense, but future tense. Shall come in. God shall come in from Teman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, or shattered. And we think of the stone shattering the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 12, Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head. That word head is rosh. And it takes us back to those events that are described in Ezekiel chapter 38. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. Now, it is not our purpose in this class to provide a detailed study of the thrilling events step by step of the military campaigns that lead to the establishment of the kingdom. But as we consider our overview, they do constitute a critical part of the things concerning the kingdom of God in regard to the establishment of it. These are things we hope, brethren, we hope to be personally involved with. Events that we hope to witness with not only our eyes, but with every sense and emotional capability that we will have in the spirit nature. With our own hands. These are not fairy tales, but they are reality. Not reality yet, but they will be reality. Continuing on, from the first encounter and slaughter at Basra, the Lord of hosts, or I, will, I who will be armies, carries forward along a similar path typified by the children of Israel coming out of Sinai. The northern invader, the awful manifestation of Nebuchadnezzar's image, will take a defensive stand, completely perplexed at what they are dealing with at the place called where? Armageddon. Heap of sheaves in the valley of judgment. The stone cut without hands will be poised to strike the feet of the image. This abomination that has made set up its tabernacle in Israel, which has firmly planted itself between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. The words of Ezekiel 38.17. And let's, let's look this up. Ezekiel 38.17. Ezekiel 38.17 And the, the unity of all the prophets, the words of Ezekiel 38.17 and the unity of all the prophets who have prophesied of this terrible northern invader and its destruction are to find remarkable fulfillment. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken of in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. And moving on to verse 21. I wish we had time to read all of it. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Verse 23. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. It is through the destructive force of this Lord of hosts, that which we hope to be a part of, that God openly reveals His power, strength, and His anger in the eyes of all the nations. Out of an unimaginable terror in the face of the miraculous multitude, 
and all the destructive forces of nature that are mustered at this time. The Gentile hordes turn on each other in absolute chaos, destroying their own selves. According to Zechariah 14, we know that Christ will stand upon the Mount of Olives, splitting it in two, and no doubt unleashing an earthquake of such overpowering magnitude that will completely change the topography of the area surrounding, including a lifting of the Dead Sea Basin. This, this is a massive event. Ezekiel 38.19 informs us, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great shaking. And that word shaking literally means vibrations in the land of Israel. Now, when we talk about earthquakes, latter-day earthquakes, we know that there is a spiritual as well as a natural application to that. I think what we're reading here in 3819, because when you look up earthquake or shakings, there's different words that are used, and I'm not going to get into that, but this is actually speaking of something literal or vibrations. The mass of nature is not only illustrated by the splitting of the mount, but also by the creation of a plain from Geba, which is about seven miles north of Jerusalem, all the way to Rimon, which is about 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem. By some calculations, there will be, have to be a rise of both Jerusalem and the Dead Sea of at least 1,300 feet above present elevations to satisfy the scriptural descriptions. And the fault line that passes right through this area is part of a larger fault known as the African Rift that runs from Syria down through Africa. We have heard logical arguments made that an earthquake of such magnitude will not only shake this fault line, but will also cause a chain reaction on the fault lines that run as veins throughout the earth. And this, just, this is just a suggestion, but it is awe-inspiring thought to think that when Christ's feet touch the Mount of Olives, and when the Gogian forces as the representative of the kingdom of men are about to meet its destruction, that the people of the world will literally feel, they will literally feel what is happening in Israel under their own feet. And this is not without historical precedence. We've had major explosions of volcanoes and earthquakes in which the vibrations have been felt all across the world. Krakatau is one that happened in the 1800s in which that island blew up. And I think they said that the the bell, the church bells in Boston rang from that explosion. We're literally talking about all the way around the world. So again, that's just a suggestion, but there may be some kind of wake-up call to the world that something is happening. It is at this time that the feet of the Assyrio-Babylonian image are struck and the image begins to crumble. And through the defeat of this great army, Yahweh breaks and avenges the hatred that has been directed towards the natural seed of Israel. And the rightful possessor of Israel and Zion is clearly made known to the nations. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 12. Verses 2 through 5. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem, a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. Now, we understand that Israel shall be saved by Christ and His mighty multitude. The arm of Yahweh made bare before the nations as was prophesied by the Apostle Paul, and that which he will personally be able to witness himself. In Romans 11 we read, So all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I shall take away their sins. 
The rescued Jews will ask in this moment of deliverance. And let's go to Psalm 24. The rescued Jews, those who are held up in defensive positions in Jerusalem, will ask this question. They'll say, starting in the seventh verse, I'll just go ahead and read it from, rather than my notes, but from the Bible. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. This is the question they ask. Who is this King of glory? The answer, the Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Like Joseph made himself known to his brethren who had brutally mistreated him, Jesus will make himself known to his brethren as the crucified Messiah. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And this is out of Zechariah. And in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. The mourning of Hadad-Rimmon refers to the great mourning that took place among the Jews when their righteous king Josiah was killed at the hands of the Egyptian armies. We are told that all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. So will Judah and Jerusalem mourn again when they realize how they have in the past rejected God and His Christ. Zechariah 13.6, let's take a look at that. Zechariah 13.6 One shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Though there will be great joy and amazement in Israel for the deliverance they have received, so will they be grief-stricken as were the brothers of Joseph when they understand the full implications of the rejection of Christ and the great mercy that has been extended to them. This will be a truly beautiful and heart-rending scene when Jesus reveals Himself to His Jewish brethren. And from this point, the regathering of those of the Jews that have fled the invasion of the Gagian forces, as well as Jews throughout the earth, the process of bringing them back to the land after a similar manner as the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, and we're speaking of those actually that uh, were outside of the land, not those who fled either to Egypt or to Jordan, but those who are still in the diaspora throughout the earth, the process of bringing them back to the land after a similar manner as the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, as well as purging out those who are rebellious, will commence. And that information, and we're not going to read it this time, is found in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. Now, Yahweh's battle axe. From this point on, no longer are the Jews despised and defeated, but they are included in the work that, will, that still will need to be done in subjecting the world to Christ. As self-confident as the Israeli military is now, based upon decades of truly miraculous victories, we must remember that their defeat at the hands of the Gagian host will no doubt be devastating. The lesson will have been brutally learned that they are not the masters of their own destiny. But as it will be the honor of the saints to help Christ in defeating the enemies of God's kingdom on earth, so also will natural Israel be used as a weapon of war and destruction by the hand of God. How fitting it will be that the object of the world's hatred, that which they thought had been destroyed forever, will be turned on them as a devastating force that is beyond natural explanation. Thinking on that can give us a great deal of satisfaction, especially seeing how Israel is treated now. Let's go to Zechariah 12.6.
Zechariah 12.6. In that day, speaking of this time period that we are now speaking of, in that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. Zechariah 10.3. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as a, his goodly horse in the battle. This goodly horse is again referred to in Revelation 19 as the horse that Christ rides upon. This is Israel. And they shall be as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them. Isaiah 41, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 41, verses 14 through 16. Fear not, thou worm of Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. They will be made a sharp, threshing instrument having teeth. Jeremiah 51.20 Won't the world be surprised? Jeremiah 51.20 Speaking of Israel, natural Israel. Thou art my battle axe. And the proper translation of that is my hammer. Thou art my battle axe or my hammer and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. This is the future that Israel will have to look forward to. But before the work of conquest proceeds beyond Israel's border, there will be a suspension of hostilities. And how long, we really cannot be sure. Uh, there will be immediate work to be done. According to Ezekiel 39, the dead of the Gogian invasion must be buried. Seven months. The cleanup from the great invasion carries on for a total of how long? Seven years. The kingdom, or at least its initial stage, will have been established and the earth will have entered into the seventh vial period, opening up a time of voices, thunders, and lightnings and a great earthquake, which is referred to in Revelation 16, verses 17 and 18. Does this represent a time of peace for the world? No, it represents a time of world war and both political and literal shakings throughout the earth, but not without merciful conditions of peace being extended to those who are willing to listen. Even though Gog has, let, has met its destruction in the mountains of Israel, the nations of the earth, European and elsewhere, will have time and will take time to reorganize themselves. And this is not a time of peace. No doubt the world will be reeling in shock at the events that have transpired in Israel. And a declaration of submission and of the coming new world order will be declared to the nations. Go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel or age-lasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come 
and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This will be the message to the nations. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. Remember, Christ will have been set up His throne in Jerusalem at this time. Psalm 2, 6-12 Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Based upon the types of the harvest and vintage periods that we've already made reference to, found in the law, a total of 50 days or years. And already devoting 10 days to the harvest period or 10 years that has already taken place or the judgment uh, to the destruction of the Gogian host and devoting 30 years to the destruction of the beast or European nations. That's spoken of as one hour or 30 years. And we'll make mention of that in just a moment in Revelation 17.12. This leaves us with approximately a 10-year time period for this age-lasting gospel proclaimed. Now, that does not mean that there are not judgments uh, and battles taking place during this time period, but it does give a chance or a time for this gospel to be uh, preached and this message to be sent out that the nations might do the right thing and give in. Now, understanding that they are seeing what they are seeing defies natural explanation. The world will understand that what they see is not normal. The world will turn their eyes towards Rome for direction. For centuries, the papacy has prophesied in order to divert the attention away from itself. This is what they prophesied of the coming Antichrist who will assert himself as king of the Jews and that will establish a kingdom out of Jerusalem and call for the submission of nations to himself. This has also been adopted by many of the mainstream evangelical denominations. It will seem to many, especially those of a Catholic Protestant background, that such an expectation is now being filled before their eyes. What, what they've been taught, what they've seen, what the Catholic Church is saying, they're going to see this fulfilled before their eyes. The problem is, is that they have a mistaken identity of what they're seeing. We also know that the spirit of humanism the frog-like spirits of fraternity, equality, and liberty run deep throughout all the earth. The same spirits that led the nations to Armageddon in the first place. The independent, self-consumed human spirit, though shaken by the events of Armageddon, will not give up easily. The harvest period will have passed and now the vintage period will have begun. Revelation 19, 19 and 20. If we could go there, please. No, that's not right. That's Revelation 14, excuse me. Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs or sixteen hundred furlongs. The square root of sixteen hundred is forty. And that's where we get another number of forty years a regathering of all the Jews and a subjection and judgment of all nations. 1,600 furlongs or 40 years that fits into this overall 50-year time period. Now, 
but a critical component to the subjection of the, subjection of the nations and the vindication of Yahweh's justice requires the cutting off of the seductive head, Babylon the Great, having roots as far back as Nimrod himself to finally meet its end along with all others who would support it. This has been the enemy and persecutor of spiritual Israel as well as natural Jews, otherwise known as Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This itself is the embodiment of the Antichrist influence, also called the man of sin, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7's fourth beast, the beast of Revelation 13, whose number is 666, or the Latin man, and the false prophet of Revelation 16. Though also having roots within the apostolic ecclesia of the first century, the only resemblance it has, has to the apostolic faith is in name only. Having through spiritual fornication corrupted every aspect of true belief and practice while doing all in its power to destroy those who held to the gospel in its simple and pure form, claiming to be the one true church and its head claiming to be the vicar of Christ. And the reason we put that up there is just to show just a small sampling of some of the wickedness that has been promoted by this mystic or mystery Babylon system. We have up here the, just a, a picture of, 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 a, of a martyr scene, uh, of the burning of, of one who had, was promoting or printing Bibles, uh, the burning of Bibles. We know that the Catholic system kept uh, the reading of the Scriptures under subjection out of fear of, of what it would do to their own prestige and system. Uh, we have up here on the other side the Pope Pius XII. Uh, they called him Hitler's Pope. Uh, because of his actions or silence against the Jews during World War II. Um, and now that, that's, they're trying to make him a saint now, and that's become a big issue for, for Israel, trying to head that off. And then a cartoon down here of a uh, priest, Catholic priest, burning uh, the uh, flag of Israel. Uh, it's even recognized among the media of, of, of Rome's hatred towards the natural Jews as well, both an enemy of spiritual and natural Israel. Truly a wolf in sheep's clothing, whose true root is purely pagan, purely Babylonian. This abomination, according to Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, has committed blasphemy against God to blaspheme His name and His tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. In recent times, it has also been in direct opposition to the establishment and prosperity of the nation of Israel. For years, officially refusing to recognize Israel as a nation out of conviction, that its reestablishment was in direct conflict with the papacy's claim that the church was itself spiritual Israel and the kingdom of God on earth. This is documented. An enmity still exists and we can have no doubt that the papacy will play a key role in endorsing the invasion by the Gogian host. And after the Gogian destruction, Rome will become the de facto spiritual guide of all that are appalled by the reversal in Israeli fortunes and that refused to heed the command of the everlasting gospel. We are told in Revelation 17 of the beast nations, or Catholic Europe, will unify power against this perceived threat. Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14. Let's go ahead and turn that up. Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14. And we know we're throwing a lot of concepts and, and things that need further explanation out. Hopefully we can take some of these things and, and, and focus in on on some of these areas. Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So these European, Catholic European nations give themselves to this beast or combined beast system for one hour as a result of the teachings of Rome. As a result, Rome, or the head, the enemy of all that is true and good will fall to oblivion. And we have some of the images up here of the 
the harlot of Revelation 17 riding on this beast or this, this beast European nations, its influence upon them. Uh, these over here, over there to the far right, um, out of Time magazine, the symbol of a woman riding on the beast. The Babylonian imagery that is, that is, that had been revived in recent times, we've all seen this. The uh, Greek euro at the bottom that has the woman riding on the beast. So even the imagery is not too difficult to make a connection with. Revelation 14.8 Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Revelation 18 verses 4 through 9 and verse 11. For her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded others, and we know what she's done to others, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow given her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her <coughs> shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth, and this isn't merchants as we think of it, but spiritual merchants, her priesthood, those who spread her lies, shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. But brother, not everyone will mourn. Christ and the saints especially will rejoice over the destruction of all that this system has represented and the brutality and deceit it has manifested. Though Rome, mystic Babylon, will fall in a sudden and burning destruction, the system it represents, which is found throughout the whole world, falls into a 30-year period of judgment, what is spoken of by the Scriptures as one hour. The Expositor series on the Apocalypse comments, it says, it is suggested that as the Jews divided the day into 12 hours, that this hour can represent the hour of the year or a month of 30 days. And that's just a brief summary of why we, out, of 30, or out of one hour we come up with the idea of 30 years. Wherever the destruction of Rome and the Vatican City it contains falls into this 40 or 30 year time period, the complete destruction of the system itself and its supporters will take time. God, uh, God could have done it with a snap of a finger. There's no question. Yes, He could. But as we have mentioned before, His plan will work out precisely and over time. We have to remember, we're talking about the change of the entire earth. These things do not happen overnight. Revelation 19, verses 2 and 3. The great celebration, the hallelujah celebration that comes out of this. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. Hallelujah! is Hebrew for praise ye Yah. It is clear from the scriptural record that the false religious system that has dominated the earth almost from its beginnings is far more obnoxious to God than the political enemies that it will also, that will also meet their end at this time. Though the Davidic throne and kingdom will be reestablished upon the destruction of the Gogian forces, the ultimate joy and celebration is reserved for the destruction of that which is religious in nature rather than political. Though we of this age have not suffered at the hands of Rome, many brethren who have come before us in preceding centuries have lost their lives and their witness against this vile institution. Others, including ourselves, have had to contend against the foul pollution of lies that blind men's eyes from the light of the truth. What joy and what righteous vindication will be enjoyed when the capital city, Rome, 
The religious seat of what Nimrod had begun almost 5,000 years before is put down forever. While Jerusalem, once plowed under by the authority of Rome, stands as the preeminent metropolis politically and religiously of the entire earth. So while Babylon is destroyed, Jerusalem will stand as the preeminent city among the nations. Truly, praise ye Yahweh. But even with the destruction of the capital, as we have mentioned, there will still exist sympathizers and rebels that will still need to be put down once and for all. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, describes the final push to destroy everything that still stands in the way of complete submission of the earth. And we're going to read that, starting in the 11th verse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Remember we mentioned this being symbolic of natural Israel. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, Christ. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, the saints. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jumping to verse 19. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone, or everlasting destruction. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And Brother Thomas makes mention in Eureka that these fowls that fill themselves with the flesh of kings are the Israelites that take their vengeance out upon the nations and the remaining nations of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 30 through 33. This also gives us graphic description of that day. And it would be good to look it up. And if you don't have this marked, please mark it. Jeremiah 25, 30 through 33. And it's no wonder that if time goes on long enough and there's already movements to do it, we know that there are places in our society that are already trying to outlaw the Bible as hate speech. Uh, not only against its hate, its hate speech against homosexuality and all kinds of immorality, but of the violence that's found in the Scriptures. Um, if, if time goes on for us, that's going to be a reality that we're going to have to face. Um, but it's, this would be one example of that, that kind of speech that they would find abhor, abhorrent. It says, The slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered, nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Jeremiah 20, did I get the wrong, wrong passage for you all? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started at 33. I'm sorry about that. Jeremiah 25, and I started at 33. I had had a reading from my notes here rather than looking it up. Gently re-educated. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not, not, nothing too gentle about that. Now, brethren, then will it be said in wonderful fulfillment, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. We're going to see, hear that a lot over the next few weeks in preparation for the Christmas holidays. This was recited by the angelic host in Christ's birth, at Christ's birth. This will mark another or second hallelujah chorus of praise ye Yah. Then will the saying of the seventh apocalyptic angel fully apply, where in Revelation 11.15 it was stated, 
the kingdom, and this should be singular. It says his kingdoms in, in, the, in the authorized version. But it should read the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever over the ages of the ages. At this time, the world will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Brethren, this is or will be the day which the Lord hath made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. It is of a future age. This will be the day that Yahweh hath made. Now, in our final lesson tomorrow morning, and I know we, we rushed through a lot of... Uh, it, it's not history for us now, but at one point it will be history. We ran through about 50 years of, of information in a very short short time period. There's a lot packed into that. But tomorrow morning in our final lesson, we hope to discuss the beauties of the coming millennial day. And I know we won't do that justice in just one period, but hopefully we can turn our attention to that time. But before we close, I want to read a quote from Brother James Stanton. And it's actually associated with, with an article about the, the Hallelujah celebrations uh, that are talked about in Revelation 19. But he has this to say. He says, Of one thing we are more and more convinced as the, as the time draws near, and that is that preparedness is not necessarily related to the fewness of years left. We must develop the conviction that the day of salvation is today. We are not servants because the Lord may come tomorrow and we fear that we may be lacking. We are servants because we rejoice today in the contemplation of the ultimate glory that deity purposes. Our fears for our own failures are of no consequence. Our interest and promotion of the Yahweh name is paramount. Praise waited for thee in Zion. Unto thee shall all flesh come. Alleluia. And with that, we'll, we'll close and turn it over to Brother Mark.